So, Mark. Yeah? We need to talk about zoos. I have so many conflicted emotions about zoos. Okay, tell me about it a little bit. I mean, it's like, I feel like zoos, some zoos at least, do a lot of good in terms of, like, breeding programs and raising awareness. A lot of zoos do really good conservation work. Yeah, but at the same time, it's also like, should animals be in captivity? I don't know, but does that mean I don't love going to zoos? It does not. I love going to zoos. Zoos are great! I love the zoo. They're so fun! I love animals so much, and I just love being able to look at them for free because we live in D.C. Yay! I also like looking at animals. Yep, it's weird to say, but that's what you do at a zoo, and it's great. What is your favorite animal to look at at the zoo? Okay, so my favorite animal is a giraffe. But one time we stood and watched the baboon enclosure at a zoo. Like, it was really big. There were a lot of them for, like, 40 minutes because you could see every raw physical emotion play out in this drama unfolding in front of us. I'm imagining, like, King Lear, but staged with baboons. Yep, it's like the adults are fighting, the kids are playing in the distance. You could see jilted lovers walking away from each other. Mostly, you know, someone would be picking insects off of one of the baboons, and then it would turn around and growl, and the other one would walk away. And it was just like, what happened there? And then randomly, someone would start chasing the other one. It was a lot. They were very violent, but it was very fun to watch. Excellent. Yeah. My great memory of the zoo growing up was there was this, like, enclosure is the wrong word because it's not like a big cage thing. It was just in the middle of a big walkway, and it was a prairie dog warren. And so they would just pop their way up and look around and dive back down, and I loved it as a little kid. I was like, look at these weird little weasels sticking out of the ground. Did they have, like, glass on the side so you could see their warren, or was it just when they popped up? This was just when they popped up. Okay. Which created a fun whack-a-mole energy to it. Yeah. I love zoos. In uh, Singapore, also, the orangutans are not actually kept in an enclosure. They have a site, but it's not, like, walled or moated or anything. They just hang out on their, like, play sets and stuff. Oh, interesting. So are there, like, ropes for them to go across? Yeah. So they have, like, you know, swings and ropes and stuff to hang out at. But one night, we were there towards the end of the day, and we saw the zookeeper, like, feeding all of them milk from a bucket, and then turned to lead them back to their actual house, like, with walls, I assume, for the night. And they were just walking in a single-file line back, and the lead orangutan put his arms up on the zookeeper's shoulders and was, like, walking back, and it was the cutest thing in the world. The zoo in this movie is a nightmare. The zoo in this movie is horrifying. It's a bad zoo. Is the Central Park Zoo this awful? That I don't know. I do know the Central Park Zoo does not have any lions. It does not have any zebras. It does not have any hippos. And it does not have any giraffes. Yeah, because all of those are too big to be in Central Park. Right. I mean, this zoo is made up of enclosures that are probably like the size of a studio apartment. Yeah. That have concrete. Sometimes not even concrete. Like brick and wrought iron fences that are maybe, like, waist high on a human going around them. Yeah. The animals jump over the walls easily. And you're supposed to think that they're, like, so well treated. And they are, like, the humans do give them good attention. But the cages are so depressing. They look like New York City rooftops more than a zoo. Yeah, it's horrible. And with all the, like, tricks and shows that they're doing, it almost feels more like a carnival than a zoo. It does. It almost feels circus level. Yeah. And it also I said seems... carnival because it seemed less legit than a circus. Yeah, but they're probably treated equally as well. Or yeah. better. I mean, still better. But 
the amount of people that showed up to see the like eight animals that lived in this zoo too was unbelievable. It's definitely some school field trip. Yeah. There's one zebra, one lion, one giraffe, one hippopotamus. There's two monkeys. Two monkeys and three penguins. There are four penguins. Four penguins. There are ten animals in this zoo. We see no evidence of any other animals in this zoo. That is true. It's horrible. Have we said what movie we're talking about? We're talking about Madagascar. If you haven't figured it out, it's DreamWorks Madagascar. It's worth talking that the penguins themselves weren't supposed to be in the movie either, except that the movie's directors, Eric Darnell and Tom McGrath, had previously, like right when Tom McGrath got hired by DreamWorks in 1998, they were both working on this movie called Rockumentary, which was like an animal parody of Hard Day's Night. And they were like all set to do it. They were locking down the rights because it was literally going to be a Beatles parody, but with penguins. Okay. And all of the Beatles slash their estates signed on, except George Harrison refused. <laughs> and so they weren't able to make the movie. So it got shelved like a week after Tom McGrath signed a contract to work for DreamWorks. So he wound up like working on other projects. Yeah. And then they got brought on to the proto version of Madagascar. And the two of them were like, well, we're putting penguins in this because they're great. Honestly, the penguins are the only part that I still found somewhat enjoyable. Oh, they are the best part. Yeah. That's worth noting. That lead penguin, Skipper, is voiced by Tom McGrath, the co-director. Yeah, I think the other one directs one of the other penguins too, doesn't he? So he voices Skipper, who he was originally supposed to be a placeholder voice, but they just decided they liked what he was doing. Then Chris Miller voiced Kowalski. Jeffrey Katzenberg did the sounds for Rico, who doesn't actually talk. Which one is that? Oh, is that the one that actually makes the sushi? I believe so. Okay. So this sounds our Jeffrey Katzenberg, yeah. the K in SKG, and the private is Christopher Knights. So they are all like crew guys. Yeah. Thank goodness they're there, because I think the only time I chuckled is at the penguins. They're the best part. I really enjoyed this movie when I watched it in theaters, and that was the last time I watched it. I remember just thinking it was okay in 2005. Yeah. See, I mean, you are, like, two years older than me, I think. And I think those two years at that age did make a difference. Probably significant. Yeah, so re-watching it, I was like, where were the jokes? What did I find funny? We've been looking at the films of DreamWorks Animation and effectively looking at it as a decline. Yeah. And it's interesting doing this so soon after Shrek 2. Right. Which... We felt kind of differently on. I said that I really felt like it was the road to Shark Tale, which came out later that year. And then this is the next year. And it's fascinating how far we've fallen where there's a scene in this movie where the animals are explaining the plot to the lemurs. And King Julian, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, interrupts what they are saying, stops them mid-sentence after they say they came from New York to say, oh, you're the New York Giants. And then they go back. And it's like, that joke had no meaning to anybody, but it's a huge applause line in the movie. Everyone cheers in the movie for that joke. Yeah, I think this is worse than Shark Tale. You are probably right. And that was shocking for me to discover. Shark Tale has a coherent narrative with interesting ideas. With well-developed, like, not well-developed, but a developed plot. Characters with real wants goals and and flaws that get in the way of those wants yeah 
This movie... This is not, by the way, a trick to get us into liking Shark Tale. No. We are not backing into this. No, Shark Tale is a bad movie. This one is just worse. But this is a movie that's so disjointed, it literally flips protagonists halfway through. Yeah. For the first half, Marty the Zebra is the protagonist. But then, once they get to Madagascar, it totally flips. And the story, including its conflict and the challenges, it's all about Alex the Lion. Right. It's just they don't build towards anything either, really. I just don't understand what the point of this movie is. The movie doesn't even really resolve because they're not able to get off the island. Yeah, there's no... It just ends. The movie just ends. It's just like, they're in New York. Now they're on this island. Then the boat comes, but the boat is out of gas. the boat comes... The boat is out of gas, and, and the that's the punchline at the end of the movie. And then the movie's over. There's no character development. No character really changes in this movie. You could say no. Alex changes. But be- not really. But not really, because what happens is he gets worse and then gets back to normal. Yeah. Gloria is not characterized beyond sassy black woman. Correct. And Voiced by Jada Pinkett Smith. Yes, and then Melman the Giraffe, voiced by David Schwimmer. Hashtag give us the swim. Is just a... Uh, a hypochondriac with no other feature. And I'm wondering if Madagascar... Did you notice that when the zookeepers bring them their food, they're all brought food, except Melman is just brought prescription drugs? Yeah, he only takes pills. He eats nothing else. Yeah. I'm just wondering if... Because I think in Madagascar 2, there's more B-plots, at least. So, in the original version of this, to the point that there was a version of this that test audiences saw... In which Gloria was pregnant. She was a pregnant hippo as part of a zoo breeding program. Okay. And then gave birth on Madagascar. And then also Melman was in love with her. And that was like a whole B-plot about that trio. Gloria, Baby, and Melman. But test audiences thought it was weird. And so they cut it. They were also worried that that would potentially up the rating a little bit. Because it would be more scandalous. Madagascar 2 brings at least the idea of Melman having a crush on her back. I never watched another Madagascar which movie. I did watch Madagascar 2, and the only part I remember is that. that is like, that Madagascar back to Africa? Yes. Okay. And I thought that was in this movie. Like, at least the beginnings of that. Wait a minute. Madagascar 2 back to Africa. Madagascar 3 is Europe's most wanted, right? Yes. Do the animals ever get back to New York? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we're going to find out. Yeah. As part of this DreamWorks curse that was put upon us by a witch. <laughs> I believe it was the fairy godmother from Shrek 2. <laughs> yeah. You know Welcome what we to, haven't done welcome yet? Welcome We Love the Love, you a Holly Romance podcast. Start the show. Welcome. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic love stories. It's an investigative podcast where we try to figure out why the hell we watch this movie. <laughs> Guys, these questions don't matter. Like, I don't even feel like... We need to go through the spiel. Normally, we look at movies to see their romantic plot lines. Does the romance make sense? Would you date these people? Is this a believable romance? Our mission is that if it's a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, what we've never discussed <laughs> we before... We've never encountered this before. ...is absolutely nothing. There is no romance. There's not a single romantic element in this movie. This is kind of a bummer way to bring in the new year. I... Did not realize that I was, was sure there no, was something. I was sure because I even was if convinced. it was like two lemurs that were getting it on. Yeah, I was convinced that Melman had a crush on Gloria in this one also, but he doesn't. So there's literally nothing, guys. 2019 is off to a rough start. We picked a bad movie, but we made a start. promise 
were cursed. We were cursed. So DreamWorks also, we are definitely watching the decline. Yes. But 2010's How to Train Your Dragon, I think, was a new peak. So I've heard that. So I've I'm never excited seen it. to watch that again because that one I think at least will hold up. I've heard good things about Megamind, which I've never seen. I also watched Megamind once in theaters. Don't remember anything. There's see also the phase in it. There's also Turbo. What's Turbo? I don't know. Any, it's the one where Ryan Reynolds plays a snail who races. That's DreamWorks? Yeah. That exists? Yeah. That's a movie that came out. I don't know if it's good or not. Oh, nope. I googled Turbo and it brought me to TurboTax. Because that's how unimportant this movie is. <laughs> they made a, a series. It was like Turbo Fast or Turbo Speed or something like that. It was on Netflix. It made $282.5 million on a $127 million budget, but the studio had to take a total of $15.6 million write-down on behalf of the film. Yeah, but studios take write-downs on every movie. Like, they do funky accounting all the time. Yeah. Like, some of those Harry Potter movies allegedly lost money. Studio accounting to declare losses is hilarious. This movie sounds insane. Turbo, if you're reading a plot, you know more about it than I do. I read the first sentence. I just assumed it was Cars with Snails. I think it is. Also, the cast is Ryan Reynolds, Paul Giamatti, Michael Pena, Snoop Dogg, Maya Rudolph, Michelle Rodriguez, and Samuel L. Jackson. Maybe that's our next DreamWorks. Yeah, that sounds weird. I wonder if it even exists anywhere. There's a Netflix show. I, like, there refuse are a lot to believe you. Of TV series based on this stuff. There was a How to Train Your Dragon show. There is a Madagascar show. There's more than one. Because there's the Penguins of Madagascar, and there's All Hail King Julian. Yeah. Penguins of Madagascar I also watched at one point. It was fine. I've I did not no have idea. a lot of TV options in high school. That's fair. It's wild to me that someone would want to spin off King Julian, who I find quite annoying. But oh. I can understand how kids could find him very appealing. Yeah. I mean, Claire loved that scene as a kid. Right. I feel bad. We watched this with Claire. Yeah, Claire was supposed to be on this show. We were supposed to have a Claire's Clorner, but scheduling didn't work out. And, but she watched this with us, and I think we hurt her feelings by making her rewatch this movie. This is coming out on about the one-year anniversary of our Hitch episode, in which she vigorously defended this movie. Yeah. It's bad. It's quite bad. I'm horrified at how bad this movie turned out. It's surprising how weak the animation is as well. Yeah. It's coming a year after Shrek 2, which I was pretty hard on the animation in that movie, but... It's so much better than what we see here. It's a very different style in this movie. It's kind of blocky and angular yeah. deliberately in a way that the other DreamWorks stuff we've looked at hasn't been. And that's cool. I like to see them experimenting with style, but the movements are really jerky in a way that doesn't feel deliberate. And a lot of what's going on besides the main characters, I can feel the copy and paste of the work. There's the scene where they run into Grand Central Station right when they escape from the zoo. And there are all these police officers standing around them. And we have an aerial shot of this mass of police in a ring around them. And not one of those police officers is moving. And not in a, like, intense stationary way. Just in a, like, and eh, nobody's paying attention to these guys. It smacks of laziness. It's disappointing. Like, it's really just upsetting at how bad it is in terms of the animation style. Yeah. I've also... I know that it's normal on a lot of animation projects for people to record their lines individually, 
but I've never felt it more than I did on this movie. Where I was like, oh, they recorded their lines on their own and an editor put them together because it doesn't feel like the actors are reacting to each other. There's doesn't feel like the actors are acting. There's no effort being put into this movie anywhere, really. I mean, it's worth noting, Chris Rock literally made a movie about being sick of being identified with an animal character. In top five... There's a whole plot line about how he's sick oh, of being yeah. identified as Hammy the Bear. Oh, I By forgot that point, about that. He had made three Madagascar movies. Yeah. No, this was probably like one of his most successful things. I'm sure. Wow. I forgot about that. Um, so I just looked at my notes. And to give you an idea of the kind of jokes that are in this movie, they joke about a character or something named Tom Wolf who I had to Google, I am a college graduate, and I had no idea who this person was. Oh, he's a writer. And he's a writer, and I was just like, why is this in a kid's movie? Like, even the parents won't find this funny. So the one niche joke that I laughed at, and it's not a joke, it's a reference, and there is a difference between writing a joke and having a reference. A joke requires setup and punchline, it requires construction, it is usually reflective of character and of the plotline. Like, a good joke will advance what is going on. And I think where a lot of these DreamWorks movies frustrate me is that they're not using jokes, they're using references. So, for example, when all the lemurs are in the airplane and they're having their meeting and they're deciding what to do, there's a point where they freak out because they think the Fusa are attacking. And one of them is holding a menu that says, To Serve Lemur. Which is a reference to a classic episode of The Twilight Zone called To Serve Man. If you have not seen it, I will not explain it to you. But I did recognize that and say, oh, I, li- I know that. I like that. But that wasn't a joke. It didn't show me anything about character. It didn't advance the story. There's no setup and punchline. There's no structure to it. It's just there. And so what they're counting on when they do that is a psychological response in me that feels comfort and joy in something else that I like, but without them really doing any work for it. And I think what we're seeing in these DreamWorks movies is we're seeing more and more succumbing to that attitude. Right. But I think by, if I remember correctly, I think by How to Train Your Dragon, they do some course correct there. Uh, which least. I'm really excited for. So I want to see this I am excited for you to see this. And I'm also scared it will be bad, but I don't remember any references. Great start. <laughs> if I am correct. I don't root for things to be bad. My I motto know. is always, what if it's good? I know. Hashtag Morty Engines. Morty Engines! <laughs> we still have not seen Mortal Engines because we're recording in advance because we're traveling. Yeah. Good I'm boy. so excited. <laughs> what if London, but on wheels? It looks like hot garbage and I can't wait to watch it. I'm stoked. We're seeing that in IMAX, right? Of course we are. Yes. Can't wait. Normally, around this point, we would go into the five points that exemplify the romance of this movie, but there's nothing. The closest I could come up with was there's a scene where Alex the Lion, played by Ben Stiller, is slowly going insane from hunger, and he's becoming more feral, and he chases down Marty the Zebra, played by Chris Rock, and bites him in the butt, and King Julian says... What is a simple bite on the butt among friends? And that was the most romantic thing I could come up with in the movie. The most sexual moment is when Alex dreams about steak. And it gets a little, like... Well, there's an American Beauty reference in that. Yeah, the noises he makes are very, like, pushing the romantic boundary. For sure. But that's it. That's kind of it, yeah. Um, King Julian was supposed to be a two-line character, and then Sasha Baron Cohen riffed for eight minutes in an Indian accent during his audition, and they said, well, we're writing more for this genius. Ugh, that character was so annoying. Also, very annoying. What is the point of the Indian accent? They are on Madagascar. It is the name of the movie. 
it's the problem with a poo argument of, oh, you do that voice because you think it's funny. Ugh, it's so annoying. Yeah. Should we just move on? <laughs> Fun fact about Madagascar, when I was a kid and Fiona and I would play with animal figurines, we had this, I think it was supposed to be a cheetah, but it was discolored, so it was like kind of orange, like an orange red. Like and Chester the cheetah. It's moving in that direction. It would be like if it was a flaming hot cheetah. <laughs> cheetah. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a weird color for a cheetah. Yeah. And for whatever reason, his name was Madagascar. I don't know that we knew Madagascar was a country at the time. We had just heard it and associated it with Africa. Hmm. I do know that the majority language of Madagascar is not an African language in origin. It is Austrian. It's an Austronesian Austronesian Yeah, Austronesian. So that's a fun fact about Madagascar. Yeah. Got any fun facts about Madagascar? Oh, Fusa are real. Yes, they are. They're like... They're not cats. No, they're more like mongoose. Right. We both did the same Googling. Yeah. Um, should we just do the who would you date in this movie? Their scientific name is based on the structure of their anus. Their scientific name means hidden anus. That's a surprise. It's cryptoprocta or something like that. How is it hidden? What does that even mean? I couldn't figure that out from Wikipedia. I need to know. Remember when we did National Treasure and we were just like, hey, we got nothing to talk about 30 minutes and out. Well, now I'm just Googling anus. Or... Um, Can I tell you it's something? hidden by a pouch. Yeah, which feels dangerous. Like, I don't want a pouch below my butt because then the pouch is going to fill up with poop. I oh, don't know. What other weird thing about it. FUSA, juvenile FUSA females have a, like, giant pseudopenis, and scientists aren't really sure why, but it recedes as they get older. Like, why? what it's for evolutionarily. Hyena have that, too. This one is, like, much bigger proportionally really? than is normal. And also... Like, on a hyena, it doesn't recede in the way that it does on a fusa. They're very cute. Yeah. (laughs) Cute little weasels. They should get those at the zoo. Yeah. Can I tell you something crazy about this movie? What? So this opened on May 27th, 2005. It's opening weekend. It made $47 million, which is a big opening weekend. Right. It came in third that weekend. What was in first? Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Of course it was. In its third week. Yeah. This actually was probably the weekend I saw Revenge of the Sith, because I saw it Memorial Day weekend. Number two was The Longest Yard, the Adam Sandler version. I don't even remember what that is. It's a football movie. Cool. Um, okay, so should we talk about the romance of this movie? Oh, wait, we're done. <laughs> yep. Um, Will? Yeah? The only question we could ask, if you had to pick someone to date, who would it be? Uh, can I pick nobody? No, Um, it's one of the penguins, the only good characters. Um, I think Skipper. He is a striver, and he knows what he wants, and he's willing to make big moves to get it. Maybe I'll pick... Um private because he's young and go get him and full of energy he's loyal he's loyal and he's got a chipper little voice he's very chipper yeah um okay well since 2018 is now officially over it is of course 2019 oh that's so weird it's 2019 Uh, i thought we would take a moment to look back at the year in film from family favorites like paddington 2 to critical darlings like paddington 2 to vfx masterpieces like paddington 2 to the best movies of the year like Like paddington Paddington 2 2. yeah so does that seem like a good idea to you well we gotta kill time somehow for sure yeah (laughs) the golden globes were last night of course and boy did they have some weird stuff happen yep that definitely was a thing so since oscar voting starts today we thought that we'd put our two cents in and run down each of our top 10 movies for the year that way We'll provide some advice for all of the Academy members that listen to the show. And if you are not in the Academy, then these are some cool movie suggestions for you. Yeah. And 
as we said, we are recording this early, so we haven't seen Mortal Engines. We have not seen Mortal Engines. So take our list with that caveat. Frankly, by the time this episode comes out, our list will probably be changed wildly from having seen Mortal Engines, which will take up, I'm guessing, at least three slots. I'm sure. It's a lot for each movie that definitely is contained in that one. Yeah. So, Will, do you want to go first? Uh, I can. Do you? I don't care. What would you like, Will? So I actually ranked mine. Yeah, that's true. I did not. I don't like picking favorites. Um, I feel like I'm But gonna... did you pick the favorite? Yes. Um, I feel like I'm going to be a good parent because I had a lot of trouble deciding which one I liked more. So hopefully, if I have more than one child, that will hold true. Because <laughs> I'd rather not have a favorite child. Okay, well, why don't you tell us what you did yes. pick? Okay, so in alphabetical order, we start with Annihilation. Great pick. A movie that came out this year and i had to confirm that because it feels like so long ago that didn't make my top 10 but i wanted it to make my top 10 you saw a lot more movies than me yes uh i will break 70 by the time the year actually ends yes so annihilation can you ever forgive me i really liked it it was um a really well done portrayal of a gay character in the 90s with aids in a movie that isn't about that where it's just and actually, treated both of the leads are queer yeah it's a very queer movie it handles the aids crisis in such a good way where it's not like the movie is about that but it still handles it and shows the impact and it is just... grant is great in that yeah movie. he's really good in that movie and so is melissa mccarthy i enjoyed it um bo burnham's eighth grade love it uh movie that i had to look away from because of how realistic it is i cackled through that whole movie i had to shield my eyes i couldn't look away it was so uncomfortable uh the favorite starring olivia coleman emma stone and rachel weiss so i know they're not running it this way for awards but emma stone is clearly the lead of that movie she is the person that the plot moves around yes but at the same time i feel like rachel weiss is almost more of a lead than olivia coleman too because she also gets a full arc right but i personally love olivia coleman and i have since i started watching peep show i mean all three of them are great all three of them are great olivia coleman is one of my favorite actors working today i think she's incredible in everything she's really good in this movie she's really good in Broadchurch. she's really good in peep show and hot fuzz hopefully this gets her more recognition and more work yeah clearly yorgos lentibos really likes her already which is yeah. good she was so good in the lobster um incredibles 2 great pick is on my list we also have not seen spider-verse yet which potentially could have made my list if it's as good as people are saying yeah uh Paddington 2, of course. Yeah. I feel like we've discussed that on this podcast before. A couple of times. Um, Roma. That movie really impressed me. It's on Netflix now if you want to watch it. If you can Oh, you probably can't. It's January. It's January. It was really worth seeing in theaters. That movie was unbelievable. Yeah, but this is one where... If you're going to watch it on Netflix, turn off all the lights, leave your phone in another room, and just commit to this movie. Right. You need to, like, make it a thing. Um, A Star is Born. It was really good. Good music. Lady Gaga. She was great. Oh, I thought you liked the Streisand one. <laughs> I think we all know how I feel about the Streisand <laughs> one. If you want to find out, you can listen to our episode. Would it be better if there were just, like, say, one shot of her gazing into the distance? That's I, what the movie was missing. I feel like I liked this movie more than other people because I'd seen the Streisand version the week before. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It made it more enjoyable to just be able to compare it. Absolutely. Uh, second to last is Tully. 
Oh, I did not see Tully. I really liked it. I mean, I watched it on a plane, but it's a movie that you can still, like, it's get a small the movie. full effect. It's a small effect. Charlize Theron is really good in it. The whole movie is great. I was along for the ride. The ending really got to me. Great movie. I definitely recommend you watch it. Um, And then Widows. Which is dope. Which is a amazing movie. And just barely didn't make my list as I was, like, shuffling things around at the end. Yeah, I loved Widows. Viola Davis can do no wrong. She's awesome. She's the only actor I feel like you can hire if you need someone to just look into a mirror and scream and then pull themselves together. Yeah. But that's another movie where I'm like, every performance is just clicking. And I think, I love all the people in that movie, but Colin Farrell's performance, I think, is really cool. It is. And he's so handsome. Right. And he's doing this really precise Chicago accent. Mm -hmm. that I really enjoyed where it's not showy at all, but it's just there enough that you're like, oh, yeah. He was really good in that. Everyone's great in that. Oh, it's such a good movie. Love that movie. Go watch Widows. Is that your 10? Yes. All right, so these are mine. Uh, I threw this together right before we did this. Honestly, probably the last three or four of them, I could easily rearrange the order or even yank them out and put in other things. Like Widows isn't in this. Annihilation isn't in this. Mortal Engines is not in this. Annihilation is so good. It's so cool. Y'all should watch Annihilation. There's a giant mutant alligator. And that's not a spoiler. That's in like the first half hour. And the scariest bear in film history. Yeah. Annihilation was also part of Tessa Thompson's huge year in film. Tessa Thompson's huge year in life. True. Because she was also in Westworld season two. Oh, right. I forgot about that. I think that between Sorry to Bother You and Creed 2, Tessa Thompson has a writer in her contract that says she has to be allowed to do a weird like art performance piece in every movie. She's one of the most attractive people alive on this planet. I gotta make you watch Ragnarok. I know. And she has such a presence. I think that's more of what it is. It's just every time Tessa Thompson walks on screen, she just has such a presence. Yeah. And it's not like it detracts because you're just like, wow, look at her. She elevates everyone around her. Right. I have been so impressed with every performance I've seen her do. She's great. I'm going to make you watch Ragnarok. Okay. All right. Number 10, The Death of Stalin. Oh, I forgot about that. It's movie. cool and weird and dark and really funny. It is. It's Armando Iannucci who created Veep. He made In the Loop, which is also really funny. And this is about the jockeying among the Soviet leadership for power after the death of Stalin. It was so good. It's really, really funny, but does a really good job of balancing the comedy with the horror and the human toll of the Stalinist regime. Right. Uh, Number nine, Mission Impossible Fallout. I didn't get to see that. Such a cool action movie. I'm really bummed I missed it. I think that happened when I was traveling and couldn't get to the movies as much. Yeah, it was in August when you were gone. That was when we did our like six-week record in a week. Yeah. But Fallout is really, really cool. I've never seen a Mission Impossible movie before, but that was dope. Yeah. Uh, number eight, First Man. Another movie I didn't watch. I think that also fell into my... I don't remember when that came out. I think I just didn't watch it. That was a cool space movie, which I like. Yes. Uh, number seven, The Favorite, for all the reasons we've said before. Uh, and The Duck Race. Don't forget that part. There's Horatio, the fastest duck in the city. It's not The Duck Race that I love about Horatio. It's that Mark Gaddis, as the Prime Minister carries Horatio around to make sure nobody kills or steals Horatio, the fastest duck in the city. And Nicholas Holt is also just so good in that movie. He's great in it. But I love Mark Gaddis holding the duck. Oh, me too. I watch Skins as an angsty teen. I've never seen Skins. So it's so weird to see him in this movie. I first saw Nicholas Holt as Hank McCoy, my favorite X-Man in X-Men First Class. (laughs) 
played so well by Kelsey Grammer in X-Men The Last Stand that I keep watching The Last Stand wanting it to be good. Because <laughs> I'm always like, oh, this Beast stuff is great. And then the rest of the movie, I'm like, no, it's not worth it. Um, Number six, A Star is Born. Love it. Gaga. Number five, Eighth Grade, because I had such joy watching it <laughs> and cackling at the screen. That's the only word for it. Number four, Roma. Number three, Puddington 2. <laughs> I said it in January, and I'm saying it now. Top three movie of the year. Number two, Hereditary. I am not a horror movie person. I am a big old scaredy cat, but I've been trying to push myself. And I saw that movie, written and directed by Ari Aster. It's his first movie. And holy crap, I slept with the lights on for two days after that. It scared the pants off me. I've thought about it every day this year, which almost makes me want to put it in first. But for first, I have to go first reformed, which is really cool. It's this reflection on doubt and a crisis of faith. It's a very 2018 movie because it's really all about like, what do you do when it seems like the world is ending? Not like apocalypse, like slow, gradual climate change ending and there's nothing you can do about it. And how do you reckon with that in the face of death and destruction? Ethan Hawke is great in it. It's this weird, slow, ponderous movie. And I really, really dug it. There were a lot of good movies this year. There were. I liked a lot of movies. Like I said, I could have come up with another 10 movies that I loved. Yeah. There was very few movies that I was disappointed by this year. Even Peter Rabbit didn't disappoint me. Right. Because I had no expectations for it. The only disappointing thing about it was that there were other people in the theater, so I couldn't yell at it. Right. That's the thing, is I saw movies that were bad, but a lot of them I didn't have high expectations for. All right. Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, that's what we were talking about. Yeah, this is our Madagascar episode. Guys, if you liked Madagascar, do yourself a favor and don't watch it again. But if you've seen it recently and still like it, tweet at us. I'm confused. Letting us know why you like it. Tell us how into it you are. Hashtag mad for mad. That's mad for Madagascar. Or mad for mutually assured destruction. That is also crazy. So <laughs> yes. But tweet at us. Hashtag mad for mad to tell us what it is about this very bad movie that you find appealing. Uh, it's not so we can ridicule you. I am always looking to hear from defenders of things I don't like. genuinely curious to hear someone's opinion on who has recently watched this movie and why they liked it. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, this did kind of become a grab bag episode since Madagascar didn't give us a whole lot to talk about. Or but, nothing to talk about. Well, yes. I have one last surprise for us all. As you may know, Meg Cabot wrote one last Princess Diaries novel years later, featuring Mia as an adult. And courtesy of all-star listener Rachel R., I have one last hashtag PD summary featuring the voice of Rachel herself. So without further ado, I give to you the final hashtag PD summary. Hi, Will and Mark. This is listener Rachel R., who loves the love, loves the podcast, and loved the Princess Diaries series. I am sending in my special recording of what happens in Princess Diaries Volume 11, Royal Wedding, uh, which was released as an adult novel in 2015. I did not know about it until I started writing the hashtag PD summaries earlier this September, and I immediately ordered it. I read the entire thing in one night, which happened to actually be the night before my 24th birthday. And I have to say, 23 was a fantastic year. And I am so sorry that I ended it on such a bad note because this book is 
ridiculous. And so I apologize in advance. My review of it here is going to be all over the place, but that's partially just because this book is all over the place. So Forever Princess, as you will remember, ended right before Mia was about to go to college. And this is, I guess, about eight or nine years later because it's, I want to say, four to five years after Mia graduated from college at Sarah Lawrence. So at the opening of the book, she runs a youth center in New York. She does not live with Michael because she can't do that sort of thing if they're not married. She's too royal. Uh, But he is also in New York. They are still dating. She is still friends with everybody she was friends with in high school. I don't think any major college friends are mentioned here. So it begins with her father being arrested for car racing on the streets of New York. And that is an issue because he is running for another term as president of Genovia. So because of all of this scandal, Mia doesn't get to spend as much time with Michael as she would like because there are reporters following her around trying to comment. And so instead, the tabloids start to publish things about her, like that she's pregnant with... Uh, who is it? Some relevant celebrity in 2015. So we'll say she's pregnant with Ryan Gosling's twins. And what's going on about all of this? And Mia, although they have now been together for well over, or I guess not over a decade, but for about a decade, Mia is very nervous that Michael is going to realize that being royal is just too much pressure to handle and he's going to break up with her. And she's been really stressed out because he's been acting kind of distant and obviously that means he's gonna break up with her but it turns out he actually was just planning a surprise birthday vacation for the two of them for her birthday and they go to a tropical island i think it's in the bahamas but it's like a private island with no one around which means she can walk around naked all the time which she does She writes that in her diary. I think Michael is also naked most of the time. And he proposes. So now she's engaged and the tabloids switch to writing about how she's actually pregnant with Michael's twins. Because I guess when you're royal and you get engaged, that just switches the parentage of your hypothetical fetuses. So they have been away and they haven't had access to any news for like four days and they get back and Grandmere tells Mia that she hired a private investigator to check out Mia's dad, Prince Philippe, to make sure that there weren't any other issues that were going to come up. And it turns out he fathered an illegitimate child 12 years ago. Note that this was after he supposedly became infertile due to testicular cancer treatments, which means that the entire purpose of the series is pointless now because the whole reason that Mia found out she was a princess and had to start acting as a royal instead of just being the illegitimate daughter of a royal was that he couldn't have any more kids, so she was the only heir. But she's not the only heir, and he was able to have more kids after these treatments. So there's this 12-year-old girl. She lives in New Jersey, and she is the daughter of Prince Philippe 
and or a charter airline pilot, charter airplane pilot, I want to say. And the two major plot twists of this are, number one, the mother is now deceased, so she lives with her aunt, the mother's sister. And number two, she's black. And it's unclear how that is going to go over in Genovia. So Mia decides she needs to go meet her half-sister. She was at a wedding dress fitting appointment with Lily and Tina and probably a couple of other people. All the usual subjects. Side note, uh, Tina is a cardiothoracic surgery resident, I believe, which is what she said she was going to be when she was in high school. And Lily is a lawyer, which makes sense. So they drive the limo that had taken them to the wedding dress fitting to New Jersey. Oh, another important point. Mr. Giannini, who I swear I have been reading as Mr. Gianni since I was a, what, 10, 11 year old. Uh, So I sincerely apologize. I'm sure that uh, Fiona is correct. This is pretty awkward for me, but my bad. I own up to the mistake. I did think that it was Gianni, despite having read these books. Anyway, Mr. Giannini has passed away um, because of heart condition, I believe, and Mia is still grieving it a little bit, but like, it's not brought up enough to really seem like she's grieving. I don't know. He's out of the picture. That's what's important. So, um... Mia goes to meet her sister, half-sister, and in this process discovers that all of the child support payments that her father has been sending were not actually being used to finance Olivia Grace, her half-sister. They were being used to, like, finance her aunt's boyfriend or husband, I'm not sure, failed business ventures. So Mia insists that Olivia Grace is coming with her now and Genovia is just gonna, as a country, or Philippe, I don't know, but like they're they're gonna take custody of her. So she's like, okay, come on, Olivia, you're coming with me. Meanwhile, the paparazzi has caught wind of this, understandably, because a limousine pulled up to a middle school and picked up this random girl and Princess Mia got out and gave her a big hug. Um, and so they have now figured out that she is the illegitimate child of the Prince of Genovia. So that's all going on. And... Mia's dad continues to act out. Nobody understands why. And come to find out, he is still in love with Mia's mother. Bigger plot twist. Mia's mom apparently is also in love with him, which has never seemed to be the case throughout the entire series. And the only reason she wouldn't be with him was because he was royal. So they, I'm forgetting the sequence of events a little bit, but he advocates and they decide they're going to get married and move to Genovia and Rocky and Olivia are just going to grow up. They're about the same age, be brother and sister. And Rocky's also been acting out a lot, um, but his father just died, so... Mia's very concerned about this, but also kind of understanding that's a slight plot point. So finally, they're working on figuring out wedding things, and Mia's sick, and so it's hard to focus on wedding things, and she goes to the doctor because she's sick, and figures out that, in fact, she is pregnant with twins. So all of the tabloids were right. 
And so I don't remember exactly what the verdict was for how they were going to work out the wedding without her visibly showing. Maybe they pushed it up. Maybe they decided it didn't matter. I don't know. But the series ends, hopefully ends. I cannot handle another one of these with Mia is pregnant with twins, engaged to Michael, and about to become the crown princess of Genovia because her father abdicated. And that is it. Again, I say I'm disappointed. This was such a great young adult series, and I think it should have stayed firmly young adult. So I hope you enjoyed the final PD summary. And yeah, we love the love. Have a great week, guys. At the very least, if that thing ended before the wedding, Meg Cabot was definitely planning on doing another book. Oh, for sure. 100%. So maybe there will be more PD summaries in future. Now, since we didn't get to do these questions earlier for Madagascar, Mark, do you find the romance between Mia and Michael believable? (laughs) No. Hard pass. Hard pass. Frankly, not enough robot arms involved. Like, Michael only made one robot arm in Japan. If he had made more, who knows? Oh my god. If you had to pick one person in this series to date, who would it be? I have no idea. I don't want to date anyone in this series. (laughs) You don't want to date Tina? The daughter of the oil sheik? I guess. She seems to be the only one that's a decent friend. Or JP, who does not like corn in his chili? Kenny? Is that a character? Kenny the lab partner. I've forgotten so much of this. Kenny is maybe the best one? Probably. Isn't Kenny the one who drops a globe on his head to show how upset he is? <laughs> I think so. That sounds messed up. <laughs> oh, man. This series. Well, that about does it for this week's weird grab bag episode. But looking towards next week, in the spirit of wrapping up, Princess Diaries, we are going to return to the star of that film herself, Anne Hathaway, and her princess career, but not with Princess Diaries 2, A Royal Engagement. We will be watching Ella Enchanted. This movie is weird as crap. I don't remember much of this movie. I don't think people remember how weird it is. Really excited to watch it again. There's a talking snake. Giants. Talking frogs. More giants. At one point, she does martial arts and calls it origami. Did not remember that part. John Cleese narrates it riding a bicycle. Wow. I can't wait. This is a weird movie. I'm looking forward to it. Until then, of course, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, or you can email us questions or more movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And of course, last question, Mark. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from Madagascar? I can't answer this question because (laughs) there's no dating advice given. I'm pretty sure King Julian says bite your friend on the butt. I guess that's it. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. I call him Bird.